Hey folks, and welcome to our Wednesday night equip where we're talking about Bible intake, uh, how we read and study and hear uh, the scripture. Obviously, if you're watching with us live right now or maybe recorded during the week, uh, we've been talking just a little bit in here uh, about uh, the last 24 hours in our country and uh, the election and um, those red and blue states as they continue to kind of flip back and forth and uh, still not fully knowing yet who the uh, chief executive of our country is going to be. So I want to open us in prayer and I just want us to pray for our country. We prayed last week for our country as we we're heading to the polls, and now I want to pray uh, for us as we're uh, awaiting results. So let's, uh, let's pray together to begin. Father, I thank you um, that uh, you are a sovereign, good, just, merciful, gracious, loving God. Uh, and uh, you, you know uh, everything we need before we ask it. You know what is good for us, even when we don't, and you know well, what will bring most glory to you, uh, even when we are unsure. Uh, and we also recognize, Father, that uh, America is no more or no less important to you uh, than uh, the other 160 plus nations around our world, which are full of people that you love, that you are calling to yourself for their good and your glory, and who will be in eternity. But we uh, recognize that you have placed us as citizens of this land and our church uh, in this place uh, at this time for a specific purpose to uh, declare your gospel and to make disciples here. And Father, uh, we uh, confess uh, what your word says to be true, that you appoint uh, nations, their boundaries, their times, and that you give leaders for specific times authorities. And that authority uh, entirely comes from you. And so we know, God, that you um, know who will be the next chief executive of this land, at least for the next four years, uh, and whether uh, we will experience a transition of power or not uh, in the coming uh, months ahead. Uh, only you know that. Uh, but we can rest well uh, knowing that you are completely in control. So we pray for our president tonight, and God, we ask that you would give him wisdom and those surrounding him as they both govern and seek to uh, win this election, and for uh, former Vice President Biden as he uh, seeks also to uh, have his uh, people tabulate votes, and we pray for him and for whichever would be our leader. God, we would pray that we would honor them as we are instructed in Scripture to do, that we would pray for them. Um, but let us not have hope in either person and either party, but hope only in the Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to switch gears a little today as we um, kind of get into the final phase of uh, this uh, series. So we, we began thinking historically about the Bible and how we got the Bible and some doctrine about uh, the authority and sufficiency and uh, necessity um, and inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, and then we transition to some general hermeneutical principles, some of which we're going to revisit tonight just more in practice than in uh, more. We, we dealt with them in principle, and now we're going to more deal with them in practice. And then for the last four weeks, we've talked about uh, genre, uh, the, the, the different Literary forms that um, 
books of the Bible or even certain sections of the books of the Bible uh, will take. So we spent two weeks talking about the Old Testament um, narrative and law and poetry and prophecy, which are not all of the Old Testament uh, genres, but they are the dominant ones, wisdom literature also. Um, and then uh, two weeks on the New Testament, thinking about uh, the Gospels primarily as it relates to uh, narrative, the life of Jesus in the early church, teachings of Jesus. And then last week, talking about the epistles, um, both uh, general epistles to churches and specific epistles to people, the pastorals, and then finally, uh, Revelation and New Testament prophecy. All of that, all of that that we've kind of amassed, this knowledge that we've thought about kind of in principle, uh, we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks of how do we put that into practice? How do we really do it? And, and the, the best way for me to show you how to do this um, is to really pull back the curtain. I teased this a little bit, I think in week one or two, um, but to really just pull back the curtain a little bit into how I prepare sermons. Now, I'm not going to teach you how to prepare a sermon because most of you will never preach a sermon in your life. God's not called you to that. He's not gifted you for that. He may, there may be people in here that do. There are actually more than one in here uh, who have in the past and likely will again. Uh, some of our elders and then even some others uh, that, are, that are present have preached at certain points in their lives. Um, but that's not most of you. Um, some of you are small group leaders. Some of you watching with us right now uh, lead small groups. You lead, you lead other Bible studies here at the church or in your home or in our community. Uh, and as you, as you do that, these may be some things that will help you. But even if you'll never stand before a large or small gathering of people and seek to teach or preach or instruct in uh, the truths of Scripture, learning how to do that, learning how somebody does that will contribute greatly to your understanding of how you study the Scriptures on your own. Um, th there are three reasons that I preach the way that I do. The way that I preach on Sunday mornings is called expository preaching. It's one of our core values that we value expositional preaching in our corporate gatherings. And so because it's one of our core values, it's something that we will do here as a church. If it's not me standing here and doing it, whoever else will come into this place will be told this is the kind of preaching that we value. And uh, with uh, expositional preaching, uh, which, which is taking one verse of text and explaining that text um, and drawing uh, gospel application in the lives of people um, comes a, a, another approach, more of a holistic approach to sermon planning, which is uh, expository sermon series. Now, an expository sermon doesn't have to be as an expository sermon series, but it's the way that we prefer to do it. It's the way that I prefer to do it and our elders prefer, which is where I just pick a book of the Bible. It's what you experience when you show up here um, nine Sundays out of 10, most likely, uh, where we pick a book of the Bible and I'm just preaching straight through it. We are going to take a break in December for three weeks. We're not going to be in Genesis for three weeks in December. Um, there's still going to be expository sermons. They're just not going to be straight through books of the Bible as we normally do. We also take breaks in the Psalms occasionally. Um, but th there's three reasons that I preach the way that I do. And I promise you this is getting us to, to our point today. Um, 
Two of them don't really have anything to do with the point, but I would just give them to you. The first is um, I, I preach the way that I do because I believe it's the best approach to um, presenting the entire word of God to a congregation over a long period of time. Uh, so by going verse by verse through books of the Bible, uh, what I do is I ensure that I don't skip hard things. And I've preached in my five and a half years of preaching here on a week, week-to-week basis, I've preached some difficult passages. We've encountered difficult passages in First Peter and First Timothy during our time in Luke, um, during our time in Micah. In most of the, in most of the uh, books that I've preached, we will in Genesis as well, we'll get to things that there probably aren't a whole lot of other people preaching on that given Sunday because they're not necessarily the more popular verses. But um, by, by doing this, here's what we affirm. It's all the word of God. It's all true. It's all intended for our good. Um, and we, we can draw, we can learn from it and draw gospel application from it. And so uh, by doing that, it keeps me from skipping things. The second reason I preach this way is it, it keeps me from getting on a soapbox and just talking about the things that I like to talk about right? Which is kind of the inverse of the, it's the other side of that coin. Instead of uh, skipping things because I want to skip them, some, sometimes preachers would be tempted to say, hey, I'm going to preach on this. And some people will come to me and say, you know, when, when are you going to preach on important topics? Pastor, when, when are you going to preach on abortion? When are you going to preach on, you know, homosexuality? When, when are you, you going to preach on or even some doctrinal things, not just practice things, but when are you going to preach on Salvation. Well, I deal with salvation almost every single week. But when are you going to preach on these things? I say, well, when we get to it in the Scripture, right? And the Scripture deals with those things. And when we get to those things, we're going to clearly deal with them because um, we'll deal with them the same number of times that the Scripture deals with them. So it kind of evens things out. The things that the Bible talks about a lot, I talk about a lot. The things the Bible talks about less, I talk about less because the Bible talks about it less. But the third reason that I preach this way really is leading us into what we're going to talk about tonight is that it exemplifies good study. So here's my goal. And, and I don't mean this. Like I, I preach with this in my mind. I, I actually craft my sermon outlines more in my writing than in my writing of sermons than in my preaching of sermons. But I craft sermon outlines with this in my mind um, every week. And that is, am I showing my congregation, am I showing our church a good way to study the scripture. So if you never took a class like this, if you never came to equip, if you never, you know, podcasted this at some point and listened to all of this stuff about genre and all this stuff about hermeneutics and all this stuff about the doctrines of the scripture, if you never did any of that, but you sat under my preaching ministry every Sunday morning, week in and week out, year after year after year, and we walked through the scriptures, here's what I hope. I hope you would become a better student of the Bible. Not just somebody that hears the Bible well and hears somebody preach the Bible within its context, finding truth and drawing gospel application. But I would hope that you would actually be able to learn, glean over the years, over the time that you listen, ways that you say, oh, that's how I'm supposed to read this. So you actually learn a lot about how to approach genre, for instance, when we're preaching the Psalms, because we preach it faithfully within the genre of poetry. You learn a lot about Old Testament narrative. Right now in Genesis, you're seeing how I approach Old Testament narrative, how I'm doing it. I'm doing it exactly like I've taught you to do it a few weeks ago when we talked about Old Testament narrative. We take a section at a time. Most of the time is a chapter. Sometimes it's not, but most of the time is a chapter. 
We deal with it in order, asking some good questions and some of those we're going to get back to um, tonight. So hopefully, just by the fact that some of you have been sitting now under my preaching ministry, and we, there was good preaching here before me. That's not what I was saying. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just telling you why I do what I do. Um, hopefully, you've become a good student of the Word because you've sat under good preachers who've told you what the Bible says and in its context, drawing good application from it. Now, so that's, that's why I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit on my preaching uh, study, because I think it's going to help you in your own study and your own approach uh, to God's word. I also approach all of the texts that I'm going to preach from a uh, very specific uh, mindset, meaning I think about the text and I think about how I'm going to communicate the text and I think about how you're going to receive the text um, through what is known as the classical model of education, all right? Now, I hate that my wife's missing this because my wife actually works for an organization that helps homeschool parents teach using the classical model of education, but that's not why, I, I've been preaching like this before my wife started doing that, okay? But we'll go home, oftentimes we'll go home and she, she'll say, you know this is what you did in your sermon, right? I'm like, I know, that it, it's, it's because I'm convinced this is the way that we learn. And I'm not convinced it's the way that we learn because it's some newfangled way. I'm convinced it's the way that we learn because it's the way people have been learning for thousands of years. It's called the classical model because it's really classical. And it's not like American classic, meaning like the 40s and 50s. It's classical like. Aristotle classical, okay? Been around a long time. Meaning that there, there, there are three stages to learning, all right? The three stages of learning are grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. And everybody goes through these three stages of learning as we process information, if we're processing information correctly. Now, some people get stuck on one spot and they're never able to move past it. And because they never able to move past it, then they've never really processed fully the information. And um, it's why, and of course this is a personal choice, we're not promoting one form of education over another, but it's why we educate in our home, our children, the way that we do, because children learn this way, I believe, the best. Um, if you bring them up learning uh, in, in these three stages, uh, because it's, it's really the way our mind works. So let's just think about these three stages for a minute. The first, this grammar stage. This is where we're dealing with facts. We're going to talk tonight about facts some. Um, and facts really is um, controversial now in, uh, you know, the 21st century because uh, now we're hearing about, you know, alternative facts and you can have your truth and I can have my truth and, you know, your truth can contradict my truth and can still be truth. Well, that, there's, there's nothing true about any of that, right? Um, a, a fact is a fact. One plus one equals two, no matter which way you look at it, right? So just from a, you know, an educational or arithmetic standpoint, uh, math is math and the way that it is is the way that it is. And so in a classical education, you just teach kids to memorize those things because it's facts. They don't need to know why it works. They just need to know that it does at first. And when we approach the Bible, it's the same way. Our first approach to the text should simply be about facts. And that's one of the two things that we're going to explore tonight is how do we get the facts? Before we get to meaning, before we get to the gospel, before we get to the application, before we get to any of that, 
How do we get to just the here's the facts on the page, right? That's that, it's the grammar stage of, of processing information, of learning um, is, is to just determine what the facts are. The second is that dialectic stage, which is logic or understanding, right? It's where I take facts and move from one plus one equals two to if I have one apple in this hand and one apple in this hand, I now have two apples, right? I've taken, I've taken uh, something from grammar and now I've, I've given meaning to it, right? It's, it's no longer these numbers that don't have meaning to anything. Now it's, I actually have something. I, I now have, right? And that's just a really basic example of, of the way our minds move from grammar to logic and understanding that I, that I start ascribing meaning now to what I have determined to be true. That's the second thing we're going to look at today is we're going to start with facts and then we're going to get to meaning because you can't get to meaning without facts. So if you skip this step, right, if you just want to go straight to what does the text mean, then you skip over the facts, the, the, you're, you're not going to end up with two apples, right? You're going to end up ultimately which is where most Western thinkers want to end up is I'm going to end up where I wanted to be when I started. <laughs> that's, that's what most people want. Most people just want confirmation bias, which is why news is now branded. You know that, right? Like every news source in America, just about, not every, but most news sources in America are not telling you the facts. They're telling you what you want to hear. And if you don't like what you hear over here, you can go to another channel and they're going to tell you what you want to hear over there because they're selling you a product, right? And so this is the way we want in our flesh, we want to process information, skipping over the facts and getting the meaning. Um, and we want it so simply, we just want somebody to tell us the meaning from 7 to 10 p.m. on any of the cable news stations, right? You just pick which one that aligns with you and you go get meaning there. Um, well, we do that with the Bible sometimes too. If we don't really get to the, what the, what the, if we don't do the grammar stage right, when we go to do meaning, what we end up doing is we just make it mean what we wanted it to mean to begin with and we get our con- confirmation bias and, and we move on, right? So grammar, dialectic, and then there's rhetoric. Rhetoric is wisdom. Rhetoric is knowing that if I have these two apples, and Jeremy has no apples, then I have choices to make about do I keep my apples and him not have any? Do I share an apple with him? Well, how do I share an apple with him? Do I cut apples in half and give him half of my apple? Do we divide? Now, this isn't a lesson on socialism versus capitalism. Okay, I'm just trying to, I'm just, I picked a really simple metaphor about how we think about things, okay? Um, but, but that's, so math is the one plus one. Dialectic is I've got two apples. Rhetoric is, wait, I see somebody else doesn't have any. Now I've got, I've got choices to make. It's wisdom. It's I'm going to eat my apples because I'm hungry. Like that's wisdom. It's, it's knowing what to do. Now in classical education, it's also knowing how to communicate it. It's knowing, it's knowing how to take that, those facts, derive true meaning from it, and then be able to communicate it in a way that others can understand and you can convince others of, um, of what you have, have found what you've believed now to be true, but it's also learning in your own mind how to, how to process that, that wisdom out, all right? So I approach every text with this understanding that what I need to do is communicate clear information, 
in a sermon. You'll see me do this, okay? Now that I'm showing it, you're going to notice it, okay? The, the, you people, whether you're in your live, you're watching with us online, um, keep this in your mind on Sunday morning. If you just get the, the sermon notes, you don't, even have to, you don't even have to listen to me preach. If you just get the sermon notes, here's what you'll see. You'll say, oh, here are the facts. Oh, here's meaning. Oh, wait, here's wisdom. All right, like it, it, it process, I, I, I think about this every week as I, as, I, as I write it because I know this is the way that good people process information or people process information well, not good people, meaning good people versus bad people, but people process information well when we think about it in this uh, in, in, in this way. So it's the way I structure my sermons and it's the way that we're going to talk about approaching uh, a text. Now I've given you three, um, three things within that classical model, which is known by the way as the trivium. If you want to do some research on classical education, it's known as the trivium. Um, and it, again, it, it goes all the way back to the Greeks and beyond. Um, but when I approach the text, really what I do is I do those first two, grammar and dialectic, I do in a stage. And then wisdom, I divide amongst two stages. So there's four stages that I go through, four phases, really. I'm going to call them phases here because that's what's in my notes. I don't get confused. Four phases of, of expositional study that I go through every week when I'm preparing a text that I actually think would be great for you to go through when you're just thinking about a text. Now, if you teach small groups here a year and a half, two years or so ago, I actually did this on a Saturday morning with our small group leaders. I walked them through some of these things. Um, I've, I've actually done this same training in West Africa. And I'm talking about with people, everything in West Africa, some of those pastors there have what we would consider an elementary level education, like fifth, sixth grade level education. They can read and that's about it. Um, some of them had progressed beyond that. But, I, but this is something that really anybody could do. You could teach this if you have children. You go home, you could teach this to your kids. They could, they could learn how to do this and probably actually be better at it than you um, pretty, pretty quickly because their, their minds adjust to it uh, a, whole lot, a whole lot faster. But we're going to talk about these four phases. Tonight I'm going to talk about two because I needed to introduce it and I've already used almost half my time. Um, and then next week, I'm going to talk about the final two. So we're really only going to deal with grammar and dialectic tonight. We're going to deal fully with, with, with the rhetoric, with that wisdom, uh, which most of you are already guessing is the so what, right, uh, in my sermons. We're, we're going to deal fully with that next week, all right? So when, if we're going to be good students of the Word, we must study in an organized way that allows us to determine the passage's content and meaning. And that's what we're dealing with tonight. How do we get content, which is facts, and how do we get meaning, which is understanding? How do, how do we get to that? So we start not with meaning. We don't try to do both at the same time. We start with facts. And this is the question, we ask one question. Actually, we asked one question, then we asked like 50, all right? But we asked one important question. What does the text say? 
I have said that to teachers and preachers and helping young guys learn how to preach and in training a hundred times. And every time that I've ever said that out loud, and oftentimes even in my own mind, as I'm sitting in my study, studying for a sermon, I'll say this first off, I'm reading the text and and maybe I'm struggling with it. Maybe I'm trying to think about how I'm going to preach it. And I can hear the voice of this elderly man named Dr. Duke that taught at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary when I was there, who I had uh, on a couple of occasions in uh, classes where we were going through uh, the Greek text, which was hard for me because I wasn't very good at it. Um, But we were going through the text and uh, like line by line, word for word, and we would, we would, as young guys often want to do, jump to meaning right away, you know, and I can hear Dr. Duke in his booming voice, what does the text say? He would yell it. I mean, just in class, at least three or four times every class session, Dr. Duke would yell, what does the text say? Because if you don't get what the text says, you're not going to get what the text means. If you skip this, if you don't do good work, on what is the content that I'm actually dealing with. Whether you're trying to teach it to someone else or not, you're going to miss it, all right? So let's just say you've decided to study and you're going to do this every day, right? And so we've encouraged you. You're going to pick a book of the Bible, just like I pick a book of the Bible to preach through. It's what I've been encouraging on Wednesday nights. Pick a book of the Bible. You're going to move slowly through it. You've, you know what genre it is. You've done the background work that you needed to do to kind of know what's going on. And now you're going to start studying it. And you're going to pick that section that you're going to read. Let's assume that you're not doing one of the epistles, because I told you if you're doing an epistle, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to read through the whole epistle. Uh, other books of the Bible, you're not going to do that. So let's assume you've picked something else. Here in a moment, I'm actually going to, I'm going to show you how to do this with Matthew chapter 8. So if you wanted to turn there, so let's just assume you're going to study Matthew and you're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. And so this is the first thing you're going to ask. Okay, what, what is actually contained here? And you're going to really have to hold yourself back. I have to hold myself back all the time. Because I want to get to meaning really quick. And actually, we often don't even want to get to meaning really quick. We want to jump straight over meaning and we want to go to wisdom, right? Because we don't have a whole lot of time, do we? And uh, we need the Bible to tell us to do something, which is ultimately wisdom, right? What am I doing with my apples? Am I eating my apples because I'm hungry? Am I sharing my apples because somebody else is hungry, right? And we're going to the Bible because we want the Bible to tell us to do something. Sometimes that's the only time we read the Bible is when we're at a crossroads, when we're, when we're struggling, when our guy didn't win the election or you know, whatever, and, and we're, we're, we're struggling with it. So what do, I, what do I do? I need the Bible to tell me to do something. So we turn to somewhere in the Bible, we're like, okay, the Bible's gonna tell me to do something. Oh, slow down. And you're gonna ask yourself some of the most basic questions that you may not have been asked since elementary school when you had a, you know, a teacher that's been doing it a whole long time that knew how to teach people how to process information well and where they began with was what? Who, what, when, where, how, why? You're going to ask those kind of questions and it's going to feel elementary to you. And you're going to feel like, I, I don't need to do this. I, I don't have time for this. I only got 15 minutes and then I got to go to my next appointment. I got to bring the kids somewhere. I got to go do, I, I can't, I can't do this every time. No, you can do this every time. You need to do this every time because if you skip this, you're going to miss something. This is, this isn't only where we miss stuff because we skip. This is where we miss stuff because we think we know things that aren't actually there. Does that ever happen to you? You're reading the Bible, particularly people that have been walking with the Lord for a while. 
You're reading the Bible and you get to a text, a, a section of the scripture and you're like, oh, I know this story. And you read it and maybe you have time and you actually read it close and you're like, huh, I didn't know it said that, right? Do you know that y'all in, in Gospel Project were studying uh, Mark a couple of weeks ago during Jesus' arrest and trial in your small groups? And there's this little line in there about this young boy that uh, went in and... Did somebody ask about that a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday nights? Yeah, Brian asked about it. You know, I've been asked that question three times since y'all studied it in Gospel Project. Who the little... Who, oh, you asked me on a... It wasn't on a Wednesday night, was it? Um, I've been asked three times, why did Mark tell us about this little boy? And, and people, people who've been walking with the Lord for a long time said, I have never in all my life read that verse. I have never, I never knew that here in the midst of like this trial and Peter's denial and all this stuff is this little boy that gets his clothes pulled off of him and he runs away into the night naked. Well, we think we know what we're gonna get when we read the Bible, particularly if we've been reading the Bible a long time. If you've read the trials of Jesus and you've read about his betrayal and you've read about all this stuff, like you, you thought you knew it. And then you got to that little section. By the way, just if you wanna know, my, my best understanding of that is, is it's very likely Mark himself. Mark's putting himself in the text because he, it, he was a Jewish boy who would have been raised possibly in that area. Uh, it, it's at least possible that even the Last Supper was at his mother's house um, and that he would have witnessed some of these things as a child before becoming um, the, the one who travels with Paul and then ultimately with Peter. Um, but if you, if you just skim over it, maybe you never get there, right? So we all have that tendency. It's happened to me on more than one occasion just in these first 15 chapters of Genesis. I thought I knew Genesis, but I had never preached through, I'd preached through uh, Genesis 13 through 50 before. I'd preached the lives of Abraham, not all the way to 50. I'd preached the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before. Um, but I had never preached Genesis 1 through 12 before. I can't tell you the number of times I've read Genesis 1 through 12. But there were these little things that I just had skimmed over because I, I wasn't giving it the attention that it needed. And when I'm preparing to preach, I'm giving it the attention it needs. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know that was there. Because I'm asking some of these questions. I'm asking who questions like, who is the text about? Who wrote this text? Who are the original readers of the text? Now, some of those things are, are never going to change, right? If you're reading Matthew, which we're going to do in a minute, you're reading Matthew 8, well, Matthew's always going to be the writer, right? A primarily Jewish audience is always going to be the audience. But those things need to be in our minds. They actually, I picked the text that I picked on purpose here in a minute from Matthew 8 because it, it matters. The audience and the author matters uh, in, in that text. Um, what questions, what information is being communicated? Is this telling a story? Is something being taught? Is something being written? Is someone being admonished? Is someone being encouraged? Is something being prophesied? Is there a story being told, right? We want to ask those things. We ask when questions. Like, when was it written and when did it take place? Was it written at the same time that it took place? Was it written different? I've, I've mentioned this on multiple occasions. I'm going to mention it even, I believe, this Sunday in the sermon from Genesis um, what am I preaching this week? Genesis 15, 16. I preached 15 last week. Um, that uh, I'm going to mention it again this week when we get, we're going to talk about Ishmael a little bit. Um, that, that, you know, this stuff's all happening about um, 600 years or so before it actually gets written down. And uh, those original receivers are the, are the 
people following Moses out of Egypt. Well, there's some things that get communicated in Genesis that matter and are communicated in a very specific way, not to people in Abraham's day, but to people in Moses's day because they were the original receivers, right? And the original author. So it's not only when did it take place, but when was it, when was it written down? Sometimes those things are right next to each other and sometimes they're not. We, we ask where questions, like where did the event take place? Where were the original readers? Were the original readers in the same place that the original event took place? You know, so not only were we separated by time, but are we separated by space as well? Where was the text written? Sometimes where was the text written doesn't matter until you get to Paul and he's writing from prison. Then it really matters. Paul writing from prison is different than Paul writing from the fourth, his fourth missionary journey. Prison will do that to you. Right? And so it matters that Paul's writing from prison. It matters that Moses is communicating the truths of Genesis to people coming out of slavery in, in Egypt. Um, why was it written? Why did this author choose this? Why is this passage where it is in the context of the book? Some of these are those basic hermeneutic principles that we did, dealt with. How? How would the original readers have thought about this? Um, how was this text written? And that's why we spent four weeks on genre. So you'd say, okay, well, this is particularly like something in Matthew, um, because we're in Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew eight, which is a story. It's a narrative. Um, but it's, it takes place in the context, at least of Matthew immediately after Jesus has just given us the longest sermon that's recorded in the new Testament, right? His longest sermon is the sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew five, six, and seven. Then Matthew eight tells us about immediately tells us about three different healing experiences that, Jesus, that, that are all different and all matter in the context of we've just heard this sermon, right? Um, so it, it's changed from a sermon to a narrative, but it's intentional. Matthew knew what he was doing and he's writing it intentionally. So we have to ask all of these questions about the text, and we find the answers to those questions, and then now we're ready to do something that I think is really important. We're ready to summarize. And not, this is not, I'm going to take these, we're going to look at verses 5 through 13. So I'm going to take, what's that, eight verses? I'm going to take these eight verses, nine, nine verses, whatever that is, um, eight verses, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to just restate, you know, in the same amount of words. But what, what we're hoping to be able to do, what we need to be able to do is to, is to say this is one sentence that says what happens. And if you can't get it in one sentence, here's why I think this is really important. If you can't get it in one sentence, you've probably bitten off more than you can chew. You're probably actually dealing with two passages. If you can't say this is what happened, in, in one sense, maybe two sentences, but most likely it's going to be one, um, as simply as possible, right? And we're going to read it in a minute, and I'm going I'm to summarize it for you. Just I, I intentionally didn't take notes on this. I picked this passage late in the day intentionally for, for this. Um, but if it's not possible to summarize it in one sentence, then, then it, it's probably going to be, um, it'd be difficult for me to preach it because it's more than one passage. If you're a small group leader or something, it'd be difficult for you to teach it because it's more than one passage. Um, but if you're just a student of the word, you, you need to understand you're, you're, you're probably dealing with two separate things um, that, that, are, that are somewhat different. Now, this is a good example here is that you could 
And I very likely may, if I, whenever I would get to Matthew and preach, um, these three healing events that Jesus did, I may preach those all three together, that it may actually be that you've dealt with something too short. And so you may say, oh, wait, if I were to keep reading or if I were to think about what I read yesterday, this goes together. And so really this is one big piece because maybe you would be able to even summarize more, right? So let's actually read this text here for a second. I just want to read this. This is Matthew chapter eight. When he entered Capernaum, I've been there. If you want to go there with us, you can go January of 2022. Uh, when he entered, you actually get to see Peter's, the foundation of what they believed was Peter's house and the synagogue that exists there. It's pretty cool. Right on the sea of, right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Trip of a lifetime. A centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come out and heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who, were following, who followed him, truly I tell you, no one in Israel have found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion said, uh, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Right now, that's a contained story. There's a healing right before it of Jesus cleansing a leper. And there's a healing right after it there in Capernaum of Peter's mother-in-law. But let's just take this one for a moment. Right? We're not looking for meaning. We're just looking for facts, right? So the facts begin with who wrote it? Matthew wrote it, right? So the sentence would begin something like Matthew tells the story of Jesus encountering a Gentile. You could say centurion. You could say Roman. I'm going to just go ahead and say Gentile, right? Encounters a Gentile who's asking for Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus uses that encounter to teach about faith. That's what happens, right? I mean, that's, now you may, you may add another word. You may say, well, Jesus teaches about hell there too, doesn't he? Jesus teaches about the universal nature of the gospel and that it's going to go beyond. Yeah, I think we're getting a little bit into meaning there though. So you want to be as simple as possible. So sometimes I'll write that sentence down and then I'll start scratching out words. No, that word doesn't need to be. I want to get as simple as possible. But it's got to be something like Matthew. Matthew wrote it. So Matthew tells us the story of Jesus because this is a story. So pretty much anytime it's a story, it's going to say, who's telling us the story, right? Moses writes the story of Abraham. Matthew writes the story of Jesus, however we want to think about it. But Matthew tells us the story of Jesus encountering a Gentile, asking him to heal his servant, and uses that encounter to teach about the faith, you could say the faith of the Gentile, the faith of Gentiles, however you want to think about it. But that's just the facts. We've not got meaning yet. All we've said is this is what is contained in the text. That's really what you're looking for. You're looking for content, a summary statement of the content. Now, all we've done so far, though, is, is communicate information. Um, and the Bible is more than information. And, and I hope 
um, and I, I'll spend times of sermon. I'm again trying, trying to pull this curtain back. I, I weigh this every week, really. I weigh this on the, on the scales, you know, how much information do I give? And if y'all only knew how much information I absorbed versus what I actually give you, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I, 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 I read extensively about the text that, that I'm going to preach. And most of that is about information. Most of it is about, you know, right now it's in Genesis. So most of it is about context and Hebrew words and uh, like, for instance, this week, this week in, in Genesis 16 is, is um, uh, Sarah giving Hagar to um, Abram, right? And so I've read a lot about this week, this week about ancient Mesopotamian marriage rituals and marriage contracts, which truthfully, I didn't really know that there was a lot of information, but there is. There's a lot of information about how normal that exchange actually was in that day. Like people actually carved these things in stone back in the Bronze Age and we still have them today, right? And so I've read what some of those are. They're really pretty interesting, all right? I'm not going to communicate 95% of that to you on Sunday morning. I'm gonna communicate a little bit of it, probably about what I said today. Um, But preaching, teaching, even study, it's not just about getting the information, because we recognize this is God's word to us. Like God has spoken here and we want to get to what God is saying. The information is the first step in the process. Summarize that information in one brief statement and then you're ready to move on. You've done the grammar stage. You've recognized that one plus one equals two. All right. Now what you're going to do is you're going to begin to do some logic. I'm going to try to get some understanding. All right. So this is the next question that we ask. We've asked, what does the text say? And now we're going to do, this next phase is known as the responsible interpretation phase. We're going to ask, what does the text mean? Now, I know that doesn't seem like a very big difference, but it is, there is a wide gulf. Because 99% of the time, we could all agree on the facts. Occasionally very occasionally, will there be debate over what the text actually is saying, okay? I can, I can only think of a few passages, and we're, we're, we're probably in Revelation, which, by the way, Dr. Duke that I told you about, I took, his, I took the class that, one of the classes that I took with him was, um, uh, was through Revelation. We studied through Revelation in the Greek in, in his class, uh, and that was probably the one that he yelled, what does the text say the most? Because you just want to jump to conclusions so quickly in that. And he was having none of it. And uh, that was frustrating. So, um, right. But that, you know, there's a few other places. Maybe we would have some disagreement over step one or phase one. But in the main, nobody's disagreeing with me that this is what this story is about, right? I mean, this is what this story is about. And we could do that with what I'm preaching on Sunday morning and it would be the same exact thing, right? Moses writes about when Abram uh, was offered from his wife to take her handmaid so that she could conceive and bear a child for them and the troubles that follow afterwards in their family. That's what the whole chapter's about, right? Now, but what does the text mean? Now we're really getting into, okay, why is this actually here? What is the Lord really saying? We're not yet in what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to eat my apples or share my apples? But, but really putting some 3D to 
the math, right? So finding the meaning of the text will build upon these previous notes, which is why you have to do these in order. It will start with looking at the context of the selected passage in greater detail. So how does this text fit? In a minute, I'm going to do this here. How does this text fit within the book as a whole? How does it fit within the story? If if it's narrative, how does it fit within the story before it and the story after it? Um, Are there certain words or concepts that are in this passage that are found throughout this book? Like, is this highlighting something for us that... That, that we see so often, which by the way, one of the great things about doing uh, study like this through, through books of the Bible is you, you, get, you begin to pick up on those, on those patterns. I'm going to show this. You're, you guys are getting like the whole sermon for Sunday. I'm going to show this on Sunday morning because um, a lot of the same verbs that happen in um, Genesis 16 with... Um, Abram listening to his wife and his wife taking her hand, her servant and giving her to her husband uh, is the exact same verbs that were used in Genesis 3 where Adam listened to his wife who took and gave, right? You think that's important? Yeah, it's big time important. It's really important for our understanding of, what's, of, of the way that Moses, writing this, inspired by God, viewed what was happening. Because we could just excuse it. We could excuse Abram's actions because everybody else in the culture was doing the same thing. But by using those same verbs, here's what Moses is telling us. God saw this as sin. Just like it was sin in Genesis 3, I'm using the same words to show you God saw this as sin. Right? But if you, if you didn't know what happened in Genesis 3, you wouldn't be able to make the application here, right? You wouldn't be able to draw that same meaning. So are there words that are showing up regularly in the text? The fact that there are three healings in a row in, in Matthew 8 probably is telling us something, right? It's a pattern. So we're going to look for those patterns. We're going to ask some of these context questions, some of these hermeneutic principles, right? The next step to determine what the passage means is actually dissect the passage, Um, we list things like commands that may be given in the passage, reoccurring ideas or characters, making notes of grammatical transitions in in the passage. Now, now some of this is technical work, and maybe you're not going to do that, but but maybe you just want to go through and circle what are known as imperatives, things that are like, do this, right? Commands, like, you, need to do, you need to do this. Like circling those kind of things or, or, or recognizing when a character shows up in more than one place or whatever, whatever it may be. The third step is to look at other passages that tell a similar story, which we're about to do here in Matthew 8. Other passages that tell a similar story or, or contain a similar teaching, if it's, if it's a similar teaching. So, you know, you may want to compare if you're reading something in the Sermon on the Mount, well, it's long. Did Jesus say similar things in different places? Or, or maybe you're going to go to Luke and the Sermon on the Plain and, and compare that there. But in this context, we're, we're just looking at, okay, there's two you know, parallel healing, healing before and a healing after. What's the same? What's different, right? Um, that, that's going to help us. The Bible ultimately interprets the Bible for us here. So after we've completed these steps, we're then ready to state the meaning of the text. Now, if I'm doing this for preaching, or if you're doing this, if you're a small group leader or Bible study leader, you're teaching at some point, this is going to be the main point 
Some, some pastors put the main point at the very beginning of their sermon. I don't, um, not because I don't craft a main point every week. Um, I will often say my main point within the first three to five minutes of me preaching. Listen on Sunday and see if you can write it down. All right. Um, because probably four weeks out of five, I will clearly state my main point. Uh, sometimes I don't state it as clearly as I should, but you can always tell what my main point was by the time we get to the end because the so what, and we're going to talk about this next week about how to do this, but the so what is a restatement of the main point, right? But you got to get the main point before, before you can get to what am I supposed to do? You got to be able to get to what's the text actually telling me, Okay. And, and that begins with information, and then it begins with this, with this meaning. But even if you're not going to teach this to somebody, so this isn't just Matthew tells the story of Jesus encountering a Gentile and who uses that encounter to tell us about uh, the Gentile's faith. Um, but now, now we're going to get into, now we're going to get into meaning. And, and meaning, you know, we, we may disagree a little bit, but, but we want to, we want to, clearly state this, right? It, it may be similar to the previous statement, but in telling, but instead of telling what happened, we're telling why it's in the Bible, <laughs> right? We're asking, answering that question, not what happened, but why did Matthew choose to tell us about this? Of all the things that Jesus did, our goal should be to stay as close to the author's original intent as possible, because this is what the passage means. So again, all of that hermeneutic work that we've talked about for all these weeks before, all of this genre work, like all of that is leading up to this point. Okay, what does this text actually mean? If, if you were teaching it or preaching it or whatnot, you would say the main point is that thing that I want everybody to walk out of here and know to be true about this passage. I want people to know this, which is why I state it the way that I do in such a clear way at the application when we get to that, Okay. So let's read this passage again. Well, actually, I want to back up. I got time. Go back to verse one. When he came down from the mountain. So let me just give you a, a trigger. I did this this last Sunday dealing with, um, uh, de- dealing with um, the transition from you know, warfare, Abram, to now this covenant that he's making with God, right? And that those two things were connected. And there was language at the beginning of the chapter connecting them. There's language here, right? When he came down from the mountain, meaning with all of that in your mind, I'm now going to tell you some stories. <laughs> That's what Matthew's saying. Great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came, a leper came uh, to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. Um, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourselves to the priest, offer the gift that Moses commanded you for proof to them. Now, this is a shorter account. It's immediately tied to the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus, remember the the healing ministry of Jesus validates the teaching ministry of Jesus. So that's one of the things that's certainly going on here. But who is this that Jesus is healed? Well, we could look at the leper in two ways. Number one, we could look at the leper as an outcast, certainly, because he's a leper. So he would be living in, 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 outside of the village. He would not be allowed to worship God. He would not be allowed in the synagogue or in the temple. He would not even be allowed in his own home. But because of what Jesus tells this man to go, offer, to go show yourself to the priest and offer a gift to Moses, this man's a Jew, right? I mean, most certainly. If he's going to go offer the gift that Moses commanded, he is certainly Jewish. 
And Matthew, writing to a primary Jewish, uh, primary Jewish audience, would have, even if they had never had leprosy, they probably knew somebody that had, they would have identified with this, right? So he, he's, Matthew's, Matthew's putting this story here because he's wanting his people to identify. So they're identifying. They're, they're like, hey, man, this is great. This guy's now going to get to go home. He's not going to go to the synagogue. He's going to get to go to the temple. He's clean. That's a big deal in Judaism. But then you're going to tell me this story that we just read earlier? When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. Now, leper, on one hand, is an outcast because he's sick. Centurion, we don't like those guys. These are occupiers. So think about how this Jewish audience is hearing it. Centurion came forward appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come out and heal him. But the centurion pride, Lord, I am not worthy uh, to have you come under my roof, but only say that the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I too, uh, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed me, uh, to, to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with, uh, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into utter darkness. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now keep going. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought in many more who were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what, the spoken, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, Matthew has helped us. Matthew told us why Jesus did it. And to tell us why Jesus did it is to tell us meaning. If the Bible gives us meaning, you don't get to find other meaning. Except that's the meaning of that passage, 14 through 17. And it's very likely the meaning of one through four. But sandwiched in between it is this really unique thing about, right? So we got Jew at the beginning. We got Jew at the end. We've got Jewish prophecy fulfilled at the very end. And sandwiched in between this is a story about the centurion's faith in which Jesus says, I have found no faith like this anywhere in Israel. Then he presents this truth that Gentiles are going to come from where? What does he say? You're going to come from um, the east and the west and recline at the table, meaning they're coming from everywhere. But sons of the kingdom, ethnic Israel, not all of them, but many, most maybe, at least in Jesus' day most, will be thrown into utter darkness into the place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So sandwiched between these two Israelite healings, fulfilling Israelite prophecy, is Matthew's recording this event of Jesus. True event, it happened, but he's placing it here on purpose, right? The, the, the organization of the books was up to the author. And he's putting it here intentionally. And here's the intention. He, he's showing his, his Jewish audience that what Jesus is doing is bigger than Israel. What Jesus is doing is bigger than leper and is bigger than, you know, a faithful servant like Peter's mother, mother-in-law would have been there in Capernaum. It's, it's bigger than that, right? It's, it's going to eventually be for all of the peoples of the world. So while we would say that the information of the text, the grammar of the text is Matthew tells a story about 
Jesus uh, and encounter with a centurion asking for a servant to be healed. And he uses that to teach about faith. The, the meaning of, of the text would, would be something like Jesus is proclaiming the gospel's availability to those outside of ethnic Israel and that many in Israel will miss it. No, I can't promise you that would ultimately be the main point. Again, I'm doing, I intentionally set apart to do this kind of off the top of my head. Um, but that's the kind of way we need to think about it. We, we really want to think about it in, in, those, in, in that kind of terms. Like, okay, this is what it said, but what, what, is this, what does this mean? And I would do a lot more work. I may write it one way. I may write it another way. I may scratch something out. I may go back and say, see, because a lot of people may want to go back and focus on, on uh, you know, that middle section on some of the things the centurion said. Well, the centurion had authority, and he recognized Jesus' authority. We may get lost in some of the details of that, though, because is that really the point? No, really, I think the point's just that this guy's demonstrating faith, and he's using that personal illustration to demonstrate that faith. And then Jesus uses his faith to illustrate to the others that, that not, everybody, not, not everybody that thinks they're getting into the kingdom is getting into the kingdom. And the people that thought they were getting into the kingdom in Jesus' day was ethnic Israel, and Jesus is saying, no, you're not. A lot of you are going to be cast out into utter darkness, a lot of people like this are, are going to be let in, sandwiched in between these two other Jewish um, healings. So you see what we're doing? We're, we're getting, to, we're getting to, to meaning, right? So you would, you would write one that's just the information. Then you write another that's, okay, this is why it's here. This is what this author's attempting to do. Now, you may not think you're qualified for that. Here, here's what I know. I get people that come to me and they're like, I can't read the Bible, you know, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't always know what it means. Listen, this takes practice, all right? And be honest with you, I, if, if I did full study on this like I would do for a sermon, um, neither one of those sentences would be exactly like what I told you because I would have thought about it and I would tweak this and I would tweak that and, you know, and whatnot. But we would ultimately get somewhere close to that because I really think that's what, I know that's what the information is in the text and I'm pretty sure that's what the meaning is. We would pour over it some more and, and kind, of, kind of refine it. So practice it. Give yourself over to good Bible study. That's what this whole semester has been about is me trying to encourage you to, to really give yourself to the practice of, of studying scripture, knowing this, you're not gonna be great. If you've not done it like real good scripture, study before, but even if you've been a Bible reader for a long time, there's a difference between a Bible reader and a Bible studier. So even if you've been a Bible reader for a long time, you may have a lot of that grammar phase down. You may be pretty good at knowing what it says, but meaning, man, you may feel like you're trying to ride a bike for the first time. It's okay. Keep at it. Do it every day. Keep practicing at it. Give yourself more than five minutes though. If all you're doing is spending five minutes in, oh, spend five minutes in the Bible today, you're, you're not ever going to get past grammar. You're definitely not going to get past meaning. You're never going to get to what we're going to talk about next week. Because what we're going to talk about next week is really what changes our life. It changes our actions. It changes our, our beliefs, right? Because we're, we're not even to that third phase yet, um, that third stage where now I've got to decide what to do with my apples, right? Now all we've learned is I've got apples, 
I, I, I know I've got something here about Jesus talking about salvation is going to be available for Gentiles. I know I got that. What am I supposed to do with that? That's what we're going to do with next week. Let me pray for you. Father, uh, help us again be good students of your word. I pray that every week. Um, help us to be good students. Help me to be a good student, a good preacher, uh, being an example of how to do this. Would you uh, equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit, enlighten our eyes, open our minds uh, to your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.